Welcome to the Weekend Writing Podcast, where writers read flash fiction. White as the whipped cream that fell from the sky. One weekend, she surprised me when she told me she had met some new friends and they were hookers. Then pain struck, as if a giant was twisting the joints to tear his legs off like drumsticks off of a chicken. Skinny body sunk into the black liquid silk sheet. I'm John Nedwell. And I'm Sylvan Drake. John, what have you done? I thought I needed a hobby. Something to keep me busy during this lockdown. So you built this? What is it? It's amazing. That's what it is. That's one thing you could call it. It's a Rube Goldberg contraption. Rube who? Rube Goldberg? He did drawings of really mad machines that did things in the weirdest ways. Oh, that sounds like our Heath Robinson. He did the same thing. So, what does this thing you built do? Do? It doesn't have to do anything. I've just been channeling my internal mad engineer. Well, that's appropriate given the theme of this month's podcast. Oh, yes. This month, our stories are about madness. And surrealism. And other strange things. Wait, should your machine be doing that? To celebrate the 10-year anniversary of Wattpad Ambassadors, the Weekend Write-In posted a challenge. In 10 to 100 words, write a story based on the word cold. Here are three of our entries. The first is by Miss X Awkward X. Streams of tears gushed out from the swollen pair of eyes as the fragile heart, veiled beneath, ached in tender love for the young man before her. His eyes dead and expression emotionless, he walked away, his cold heart ignorant of his mother's hopeless pleas as they faded into nothingness, desperate sound waves that held no value in the world of cruelty. Lost and broken, the old woman watched as her son abandoned her with nothing for support, and as she stood in utter isolation on the cold street, her blood froze in horror. The second is by Nabilai. Cold is when my hands freeze. Cold is when my heart beats. Cold is when my body trembles. Cold is when my feet fumble. Cold is when my eyes tease. It surrounds the heart and soul. Bursts forth warmth galore. Everything makes you more. Better and compassionate to the core. Our third entry is from Cluster of Thoughts. Dear Cold, I know that I am your favorite person, and I regret to tell you that I do not feel the same about you. You said that you will leave, but apparently you didn't. Are you eager to know how I figured out that you are still present around me? I can't feel my face, period, with anger, a short-tempered girl. 
Hidden Code by John Nedwell I remember the first time that I heard a number station. I had managed to acquire an old radio, one that was capable of picking up the short wave bands and was turning the tuning dial this way and that. Everywhere there was the hiss of static with the occasional burst of intelligible noise as I came across a distant station. There were snatches of speech, fragments of music, and then there was silence. Silence? I turned the dial back to the dead spot. The noise from the speakers cut out, and I listened for a moment. I was about to move on when a tinny voice spoke. Pay attention. I almost said, who? Me? But I quickly stopped myself. The voice spoke again. Pay attention. Six, nineteen, twenty-five, ninety-nine. The voice spoke continuously for a minute, reeling off a string of numbers, never once repeating itself. I sat there, my face illuminated by the soft light from the radio's innards, listening in wonder. Finally, the voice finished, and there was silence once more. I listened for a few minutes longer, then made a note of the frequency the radio was tuned to. The next night, I tuned in again. The dead frequency was still there. After a few moments of silence, the voice appeared. Pay attention followed by another string of random digits. This happened every night for the next five nights, then stopped. I started searching the frequencies again, looking for the voice. Every so often I'd find another dead spot and listen, but there was just silence. A friend of mine was a radio ham. I envied his collection of equipment and aerials. I asked him if he knew about my mysterious station. Oh yes, he said. It's what we call a number station. They're all over the band. They're just a nuisance. I thanked my friend, but his answer didn't satisfy me. I needed to know more. Obviously the radio hams were the people who would know, so I started subscribing to a number of magazines. There were contributors who talked about the number stations, and more. There were stations that would play st snatches of strange music, some that would emit pure electronic tones, and others that transmitted regular pulses of noise. I tuned in to listen to these stations, noting what I heard and when. People speculated on their purposes. Intelligence agencies? Mind control? Weather experiments? Nobody seemed to know. I learned of loop lines, EVP and other strange occurrences. The information flowed around me and through me as I tried to work out what it meant. It took months, but eventually I understood. I can't explain it to you. It'll sound mad if I do. If you discover it for yourself, then you'll understand. All you have to do is take down this string of numbers and take it from there. Do you have a pen and paper? Good. Now, pay attention. Hi, I am Tom Walborn. I'm going to do something a little different for the March podcast. I'm going to read chapter two of a short story called The Men of Chaos. In chapter one, we had just moved to California. I had a new job to keep me busy, but my wife was pretty much on her own. One weekend, she surprised me when she told me she had met some new friends and they were hookers. And then she said she would like to try it. So she joins the California Hookers Association, and at their annual convention in Anaheim, we learned that, as you may have guessed, they do crochet. Chapter 2 picks up on day 2 of the convention. Here is Cocktails at 6. Patty brought me a couple of aspirin and a fresh glass of orange juice. You know, you could just try not drinking so much. As much as I love my wife, I was ready for her to leave me in peace. What time do you have to go? 
I should be gone. I signed up for a class on crocodile stitching this morning. Remember, I have a fashion show with cocktails at 6. You are coming for dinner at 7. Some of the husbands are having their own cocktail party around 6 at the mezzanine bar. You are, of course, welcome to join them, but you should probably just pass. She looked at me fondly, kissed me on the forehead, and was gone. She was right about one thing. I should have passed. I wasn't really planning to go early, but she called me about 1.15 and told me she had been asked to model a dress in the fashion show and needed her beige shoes. She told me where to find them and asked that I show up around 5.30. So that is how I found myself sitting in the bar at 5.35. It was all her fault. It was pretty quiet. The bartender was a young kid with not much to do. We struck up a conversation. Jake not working tonight, I asked. Jake was our bartender from last night. I'm Jimmy. They got some big convention here tonight, and Jake is working the cocktail hour down there. Normally, I would have been there. I'm just part-time, and I usually get called in for the parties, but he pulled rank on me. Jake called seniority? What kind of party is it? I had a pretty good idea why Jake wanted to work downstairs. He lowered his voice and leaned towards me and said, Apparently, hookers from around the state are meeting here in Anaheim for a convention. They got a stage set up and Jake thinks it's going to be a pretty wild party. Jake is in for a big surprise, I thought. No kidding, I said. I decided to have a little fun with Jimmy. It was just one of those spontaneous things that you regret as soon as they say it. They got hookers staying here all weekend and no one does anything about it? Three guys walked in and took seats further down the bar, and the kid moved off to take care of them. I was pretty sure they belonged to the woman downstairs, and that was confirmed when one of them said, I can't believe all the classes the ladies are taking. Yes, apparently there are a lot of tricks to their trade. Well, I hope Line learns enough tricks to make some money at this. This hotel costs a fortune. I looked at Jimmy. He was slowly rubbing the finish off a spot on the bar. When he drifted back my way, I nodded to the guys at the right. What you told me makes sense now. I overheard those guys in the elevator. I think they're pimps. The kid's eyes widened. I wondered about them. They got kind of a tough look about them. Jimmy was about to say something else when a few more guys drifted in. They joined the others at the bar and immediately greeted each other as fellow pimps and started talking about their women. I recognized only one of them from last night, but they obviously all knew each other. I didn't think the kid's eyes could get any bigger. I hid my smile in my glass. I'll be right back, he told me. He rushed to the end of the bar and pulled out his phone. How could I have known that Jimmy was a rookie cop fresh out of the police academy? I found out later that instead of calling his supervisor, he was calling his fellow classmates. Seems they had all been drawing scut work since they graduated. They were looking for a way to distinguish themselves as policemen. And I had just handed them a gold-plated opportunity. I didn't know any of this as I sat there nursing my drink, but I did think that maybe I should come clean with the kid, let him know that I'd been putting him on. My fellow pimps didn't help the situation. They sat at the bar telling hooker jokes. Some of them were pretty bawdy. The kid came back once and refreshed my drink. He seemed on edge. When things start to happen, he whispered, you get your ass outside that door. Then he moved off. Things? What things? I wish I could say I had a premonition of trouble coming, but I had no clue. Well, I guess I don't have to tell you what happened. You probably saw the headlines. Hooker convention raided at the Hilton. Granny's grabbed at Gala. 
Chief of Police apologizes to California Hookers Association. Misplaced zeal is the excuse the chief gave for actions by a group of rookie cops last night when they raided a netting. And my favorite. Cop confuses crochet with crotch, calls cavalry. Me? I'm keeping my mouth shut. Well, thanks for listening. You can find what happens next on Wattpad.com. The story is The Men of Chaos. Scarlet, written and narrated by Joyce Holt. Tanya checked in at one end of the promenade. Okay if my son doodles off to the side, she asked, shooting a smile at her tow-headed five-year-old. Sure, came the answer. Keep his scribbling at least a foot away from your square. Here, a basket of chalk. I brought my own, Tanya said. Joey, let me have our treasure chest so I can show this nice lady. She took the ornate old box from her son and opened the gilded lid. I'm sorry, but festival rules specify you must use the chalk we provide. Some specialty chalks won't wash from the pavement. They leave stains that last for weeks. Tanya had already drawn out a stick as scarlet as blood. Oh, she said with a rush of disappointment. But this set was the very reason I decided to enter the festival. When I saw them in the antique store window, they practically cried out to me to put them into action again. I'm sorry, the woman began again, but her gaze caught on the scarlet chalk stick. She blinked. What an amazing hue. May I? She took the red stick ran a streak across her thumb and rubbed it with her finger. She let out a long breath and in a dreamy voice said, well, why not? I can feel how much it wants to draw. Tanya gave the woman a hesitant smile and strode off to her assigned square in the weekend chalk art gallery. Ionic columns lofted an arching roof over the open-air pavement beside the bustling town square. Where can I draw, Mommy? Joey asked. In each hand he gripped a chalk stick, that scarlet one, and a viridian green. Tanya pointed to the side. Go to it, buddy. Joey plunked down and started drawing green stick figures. Tanya knelt and drew her favorite fantastic creature, a dragon with scales in shades of rose red and burgundy, and a touch of scarlet borrowed briefly from Joey. His stick figures all had bright red mouths. She drew dragon eyes of fiery orange-yellow with purple pupils slitted like a cat's. Its fangs gleamed ivory, its talons glinted like steel. She gave her creation widespread bat wings filling her square. Passersby lingered by Tanya's square, complimenting and tossing coins. Wish I could draw like that, someone called, snapping a photo as she finished with a long, sinuous tail. Joey broke into a delighted laugh. Just then, something tickled Tanya's ankle. She glanced back and gasped. 
A small, wire-thin creature leaped over her leg, green, with a scarlet mouth. Her eyes widened. Another green stick figure joined the first. A third was hauling itself up from the pavement, pulling itself to life from Joey's doodles. Magic chalk, Mommy, Joey giggled. She looked at the blood-red chalk stick in her hand, then forced her gaze back to her own work. That fiery eye blinked. The pupil dilated. A long, sinuous scarlet tail unwrapped from the pavement to wind around the nearest pillar. Keep Your Cool, Girls by Christine Larson Prompt Word, Confidence Oh boy, here they come. This should be good. Ridiculous. Don't be stupid, I told myself. And myself answered, yes, but they're cows. And cows hate change, even if it's in their best interests. Despite earlier curiosity when we began the new fence, our milkers had accepted it was okay to see us working there daily. But today was different. Today, the gate was open to the new race, a long walkway along the top of each paddock leading to the dairy. Today, there was an electric fence each side. We knew the solution to the stock breaking out and getting into the crop paddock was an electric fence. Our wallets and our bank statements boring focus on red figures solidly dictated we grin and bear the almost daily disasters and apply more patches to the patches of what we wishfully called fencing. We dreamed it and sketched it time after time, poured over suggestions in magazines and plans more. Which paddocks to connect, how to afford it, and all those gates. At last, the switched-on day was happening as the girls met the new beast on the block. In time, they would develop a strange knowing or sensitivity to whether it was live by putting their noses up close without actually touching the wire. But no such confidence existed on this initiation day. At first they all bunched up into an impossibly small tight group, refusing to take the first step into the unknown. The sheer force of numbers pushed the first shrinking violets into this no man's land. With widened eyes they approached the wire, up to a hair's breadth away. Whether the first cows to have their shocking experiences were nudged by the cows behind or chose their fate, their reaction was identical. A massive bellow. That was first. Canate still laughs, though the thought of touching an electric wire with a wet nose is a bit shuddery. And their eyes rolling back so you could only see the whites looked like they'd gone blind. Or insane. I had. Can't help myself, now I'm laughing too. A few of them licked the wire to be sure. They looked completely crazy when they hung their great tongues out of one side of their mouths and managed another huge bellow. Like demented creatures in the throes of a Shakespearean death scene. And then they charged down to the bottom of the corner of the paddock. 
kicking their stupid bloody heels from side to side with us shouting to them, Stop! Stop! You'll waste all your milk! Now Canute's laughing helplessly. There's something so ridiculous about a mature cow capering about like a calfie. The worst part was the rest of the herd also charging about, despite having no idea what had happened. The bellows of the first victims had said it was bad, and that was enough for the rest. They were believers. I was not laughing when I had to round them all up again. This time, however, I was able to shut the paddock gate behind them before each cow had to check it out for herself. Not once, but three times, with a repeat of the demented drama each time also. They were buggers to get through the race again that night, Knute says with a frown. But then he grins. But they never touched it again. Not once. Slaps, or the cat in the box. He loved this. Sitting there on the patio in the morning. Just him, his plate and his coffee. If weather permitted, out in the open. Otherwise, he'd sit under the gable roof. This morning was no different. It was chilly. April mornings could nip. He left the saucer on the table and cupped the thin bone china in his hands and sipped gingerly at the coffee. Papua New Guinea. That's where it had come from. It's not right, though, he thought to himself. Oh, bargaining to buy this fine coffee so cheaply, disregarding their abject poverty. Saddened by this sudden thought, he looked across the coffee cup into the garden, lingering on the trees in the back. Holding the cup in his left hand, he reached over to get his pipe from the table. Then pain struck, as if a giant was twisting the joints to tear his legs off like drumsticks off of a chicken. Flashes of searing pain shot up through his spine, grabbing him like a giant vice. For a brief moment, his vision was clear and curiously observed the cup as it hung motionless in mid-air before gravity finally took possession of it. Then tears welled into his eyes and pain blurred everything from existence. It was night now. He had woken up several times since he got here. The morphine had kept him docile for days. Only a brief moment when the doctor spoke of surgery did he drag himself up from the slumber to disallow any life-belonging procedures. The doctors had argued their case, but not for long. He'd die whenever he chose to, he told them, with dignity. The morphine was slowly losing its edge, the pain becoming more acute, but so too his awareness. The room was plain. Hospitals are so inhospitable. <laughs> Aaron would have loved this, he mused. Here I am, sitting alone in a sterile box, everybody else on the outside. And the moon is shining through the windows. I knew it'd be there. He closed his eyes in mock contemplation. He half laughed and half coughed in pain as he opened them. Hi, Max, he said, smiling at the old man in the chair by the window. Did you read Evan's conjecture? He looked down at his hands. 
I think he was onto something. The old man nodded. He went back to Vienna, you know. Max looked up at him. What, Abin? I thought he was in India. Nay, Ireland, actually. Hmm, he was wrong about the cat, though. Cat? You know, his absurd box. Oh, that. Why absurd? We are both here, in a box. Are we dead or alive? Max looked at him with a mischievous gleam in his eyes. Sag mal, Max, siehst du den Mond? The Cake Lady, a poem by J.H. Foliage. In thick layers of knee-deep snow, frosted icing sculpts paths and roads. Through thick floating forests, sleepy green, and spongy fields of chewy dried sweets. Like me? Like you? Are we sweet, bitter, sour, or none? The cake lady doesn't know we're here. Is she finally done? If so, then the end of the world is near and we dance in winter in snow. Cold as death, soft as sugar, white as the whipped cream that fell from the sky. Flakes of blue sadness turn to white. The sky is dying piling on heaps of sprinkled sunlight, rocky chocolate roads revealed, and fluffy cotton candy too soft to be real. The snow doesn't stop, falling and falling till it's night. Somewhere, someone switches off the light. We feast on this fine fare. Trees and flowers drink most of the snow slushies, leaving minty and moldy shadows behind. White chocolate shavings melt away to lakes and puddles and squishy land. The rest is harvested by ants, or should we say our own greedy hands, and cavity-ridden teeth. An obsession. This is what brings winter to perfection. The lonely cake lady that sculpts the same cake, every day adding more, coming back to less than there was before. I wonder if she knows why. Why the sky peels off white drying paint. Why the snow is always blank and never pink. Why there aren't birthday sprinkles, balloons, or colorful icing that spells a message for what she's feeling. Kaga by E. Prescott Narrated by Sylvan Drake Every time Riaru managed to open her mouth, she was the ten-year-old child all over again, watching her twin's dead body being lowered into the brittle ground while her father's heavy hand pressed between her shoulder blades. His words fell heavy in the distilled air. Her throat dried and roughened like sandpaper, and her tongue felt heavy and thick, clamped between her teeth. Sometimes, as they lay side by side on the big canopy bed, 
Skinny body sunk into the black liquid silk sheet. Dull moonlight shimmered through Kage's urethral ageless form. Riaru thought about telling her sister, telling her sister that she was dead, that she no longer existed in this dimension. Riaru thought about interrupting her sister, interrupting the wistful, excited monologue that couldn't possibly interpolate Kage's endless love and admiration for the now Emperor Prince. Riaru wondered if Kage actually already noticed, but was willingly ignorant. If Kage's habits were simply the soul retaining prior to death's routine, or if Kage was only acting it out, desperately holding on to the world warmth because it was Kage, and Kage refused to accept fate's hands. Kage was always there with her, whether she liked it or not, and her sister's ringing voice seemed to intertwine deep in the conversations to the point where Riaru couldn't tell if the other person was answering her or Kage. Riaru studied Kage as both of them sat neatly in front of the bronze vanity mirror, maidens crowding around them. Their reflections, twenty years apart, Kage's pink petal lips curved, haughty and confident, despite the purple bags and the gaunt haunt of her cheekbones, while Riaru's solemn downcasted eyes and faint frown lines began to etch around her eyes and mouth. Kage's pupils always shone, even though it wasn't her locks the maiden's thread the comb through, wasn't her black river of hair that got twisted up with extravagant gems and pins, and wasn't her own lips and cheeks reddened with rouge, wasn't her body that got donned in the most expensive and heaviest fabric in the kingdom. Riaru tried to suppress the thoughts, but when Kage finally took her hands and steered her out of the phoenix chamber to pay respect to the Empress Dowager, and the emperor himself, Riaru couldn't help but be filled with a claustrophobic paranoia. Because every time the empress dowager beamed at her, because every time the emperor smiled and embraced her gently, as though she was the world of his, something black and sticky and viscous at the back of Riaru's head rose and gripped her throat, heavy and sweaty and tight like her father's hand twenty years ago, whispering in her ears. Anata no namai. Wa ima kage des. The Man in the Asylum by M.S. Miller. The old man peering out the window seemed harmless. They told me he was a murderer. I watched him from a distance. I always did with new patients. I wanted to watch them interact with others. I wanted to see how they spent their days. He sat there muttering out names and shaking his head. He would occasionally lower his head in resignation. What do you think, doctor? Helga knew the old man well, having been his nurse for a number of years. I think he blames himself for what happened, I answered and I think he's in denial about what he did. Henry sometimes has better days than this one, Helga said. Some days he admits to killing Clara. Most days, though, he doesn't. I walked over to him and pulled a chair next to his, gazing out the same window he was. Nice day, isn't it? I like to engage in conversation to help put the patients at ease. The sun is shining, Henry replied. 
That's the only thing nice about it. They say your name is Henry. Mine is Klaus. You're not the same as the other doctors here, Klaus. Henry didn't even bother to look at me as he responded. What makes you think I'm a doctor? I asked him. Because you're not slobbering on yourself or ranting incoherently like the rest of us. I studied him closer, noticing the long scar on his left arm running from his elbow to his shoulder. He caught me staring. It's my fault, doctor. I couldn't stop him. I'm not sure I understand, Henry. I was hoping to draw the story out from him, even though I already knew most of the details from reading his chart. I was right there, and I didn't do anything. Grabbed the scoundrel's coat, but nothing else. He paused for a moment, clasping his trembling hands together. He was so angry, so full of rage. I was scared. I was scared, doctor. A major in the army, and I was terrified of that face. The emotion of reliving the moment caused tears to begin streaming down his face. It's not your fault, Henry, I said. It is my fault. I tried to tackle him. I needed to stop him. I was too scared. He put his hands over his face and began to weep. Let's talk about something else, Henry. I tried to think of something else to discuss, perhaps a current event or some other memory that wasn't as traumatic. No one wants to talk about anything else, he shouted. The reporters, the doctors, they all want to know about it. It's been 40 years and they still won't leave me alone. I'm sorry, Henry, I said. I won't ask about it again. We sat there silently for a few minutes, just staring out the window. You said you were in the army. I thought I read you were in some major battles, I said, trying to change the subject. A few. Fredericksburg and Antietam. Not much to tell from my end. He stared at a branch outside the window, watching the bird, which had just landed there. What kind of bird is that? I asked. I couldn't say, doctor. I don't really have much interest in bird watching. I'd like to go home to Clara and the kids now. Now it was my turn to watch the bird, trying to think of the best way to dodge the request. But Henry, you're still not well, I finally said. I wouldn't be a very good doctor if I let you leave before you were better. He turned his head quickly toward me, his face suddenly full of anger. I told you before, he yelled. Someone broke into our home. I didn't kill Clara. She stabbed me. I couldn't... Stop... His voice trailed off. I need a drink, he said. Please, a nice glass of sherry. Perhaps some scotch. Yes, scotch. Scotch? No, some bourbon, please. He became so agitated he shot to his feet far more quickly than a man of nearly 70 years old should. I reached out to steady him. Where are you going, Henry? To fetch myself a beer, he answered. The beer garden will be closing soon. I motioned discreetly for the orderlies to come assist me. I knew he was getting too agitated. Why don't we go to your room, Henry? I'll have a beer brought to you. I tried to stop him. I'm sorry, Mrs. Lincoln. I tried to stop him. I couldn't stop him. He turned and glared at me. Booth, you scoundrel. You'll not leave this theater alive. He lunged toward me, but I was easily able to avoid his grasp. As was the case... 
All too often, the orderlies had to escort Mr. Rathbone back to his room. No, no, you fools, you're letting him get away! Major Henry Rathbone and his fiancée, Clara Harris, were guests of the Lincolns at Ford's Theater that fateful night. Rathbone was viciously stabbed by Booth as he tried to apprehend him. The guilt followed him for the rest of his life. He drank excessively and eventually killed Clara in a fit of rage. He spent the last 28 years of his life in a mental institution. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Weekend Write-In Podcast. For more episodes and links to more work by these authors, go to our website at www.weekendwritein.wordpress.com. The Weekend Write-In Podcast is co-hosted, produced, and edited by John Nedwell and Sylvan Drake. In this episode, royalty-free music is from festlionstudios.com, sound effects from BBC Sound Effects Archive, and freesound.org. Well, I didn't expect that to happen. Nor did I. It was a good job you found the emergency stop button, though. But did it have to make such a mess? Look, when an engineer says, that's interesting, you really, really need to duck. Well, since it was your machine, you can clean up this mess. What, on my own? Of course, and make sure you get it done before the next episode, otherwise I'll be mad.